Okay, Booker Tov. It is uh, Thursday morning. This is the last time that we are on our exception to have the class Thursday morning. We're going to move back to Tuesday morning, assuming we have class next week. I don't know yet. It depends how far I get in Shabbos Hagalo between now and Tuesday. So if I'm far along, we, we have class. If not, we don't. Just follow your email. We begin Sefer Vayikra, the third book of the Torah. We have the privilege of continuing on our way. And uh, Sefer Vayikra, of course, deals primarily... It's known as Torah's Kohanim, within the Medr Shalacha, because it's primarily directed at the laws of the Kohanim. This is the function in the Mishkan. It's the laws of Karbanos. It's the hardest book to learn, arguably, because it seems the most esoteric, it seems the most antiquated, it seems like it's the most irrelevant to us in our daily lives. We, unfortunately, tragically, no longer have a Mishkan or a Beis HaMikdash, so we lack these opportunity for these Karbanos. So people dismiss learning this because, eh, I, I can't follow, I don't understand, it's not relevant. But they could, the opposite is true. Because though we don't have the Karbanos, first of all, we're told, the Gemara tells us that when we learn the Karbanos, when we study the Karbanos, when we recite these passages of the Karbanos, it is considered as if we offered them. So though we can't bring them in practice, when we articulate and study them, then that is the closest we can come, and it is as if we've offered them. But moreover, there is deep, deep meaning and symbolism to each of the Karbanos. Each of the specific animals, how they're brought, do you consume them, do you burn them, the fats, the, the, uh, the flour off of the wine offer, all of it has deep, deep symbolism and relevance. We've discussed it at length in the past. Primarily, I'm fond of quoting Rav Shemesh and Rafal Hirsch's approach. The word karbon comes from the word karov, to come close. The karbon was a mechanism to come close to Hashem. It wasn't some, the Rambam writes in Mar Nevuchim, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us karbonos, it was a concession. Because the contemporaries of the Jews at this time had temples and sacrifices. And the Jewish people yearned for a similar tangible way to get close. We discussed that at length. Beis Halevi, the Meshachachma, and so on. So the Rambam writes in Mor Nevuchim that the Karbanos were a concession by Hashem to the Jewish people. You can be like all the other nations of the world. You want sacrifices? Go say here, sacrifice. Cut the throat. Spill the blood, sprinkle, you can have sacrifices. That's what the Rambam says. But Rav Shem says it's much more than just a concession. And even that statement of the Rambam is controversial. The Rambam, you know, Mornavuchim, it's controversial because um, did the Rambam, there are scholars who suggest that the Rambam did not mean everything he said in Mornavuchim, he did not necessarily accept as objective truth. Some of what he said was uh, cited in order because Mornavuchim was the guide for the perplexed. It was those of his generation who were confused and who were mm. going to stray. And in order to keep them close, he said what he thought they needed to hear. That's what some suggest. Even if he didn't necessarily accept it as intellectually honest. Others, how dare, how could you say such a thing? The Rambam, the bastion of intellectual honesty, to suggest that he said anything intellectually dishonest in order to sway and keep people close? How could it be? But, so this is one of those statements that there is a debate about. So, but Rosh Hashanah Flores says, no, Korban is Karov, it's the mechanism through which to come close to Hashem. And how do you come close to Hashem, as we've shared in the past? Because a Jew, frankly a non-Jew also, who could bring a Korban in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Jewish Beis HaMikdash, a difference between our religion and others. In other religions, if a, if a Jew tries to practice as a Jew in that religion, you, you don't get into heaven at best, and you're slaughtered on the spot at worst. But a non-Jewish, a righteous Gentile, is invited as well to participate in the service in the Beis HaMikdash in a much more limited fashion, but is able to. But a Karban, so says Rav Hirsch, 
Every human being is made up of an animal instinct and a godly spirit. There's the animal impulse within us, and there's the godly spirit which helps us have a life of discipline and self-control. The process, the act of bringing a carbon is to slaughter the animal instinct within us. That's the symbolism. God, you see this animal, this ram, this ox, this bird, this lamb, this sheep, you see this animal? This animal has a lot in common with me. We have a lot in common. We both give in to temptation. We both desire to follow our instinct, our intuition, our animal impulse. God, I'm slaughtering the animal. I'm slaughtering the animal inside me. I want to be exclusively a godly spirit. And all, I don't want to take the time, but refers develops, the blood libation represents man's passions. The wine represents man's indulgences. Flower offerings, mincha represents man's most basic needs. The fats represents man's uh, overindulgence. All of the symbolism of the Korbanos is as relevant today as it ever was, says Ravrush, because it is symbolism through which we connect to the concept of, of trying to draw close to Hashem, because the more we emphasize our godly spirit and de-emphasize our animal instinct, the closer we'll be to Hashem. And the more we nourish our, go- our animal instinct and we suppress our godly spirit, the further we'll be from Hashem. So the process the mechanism to be karov is the korban, is to sacrifice the animal instinct, is to express, to emphasize the godly spirit. That's how we get close to Hashem. So, that's, hold on one more second, that's the key to understanding the whole Sefer. It's the key to understanding certainly the Parsha. Because if you don't understand what we're doing here, it sounds antiquated, it sounds outdated, it sounds utterly irrelevant. And continuing, that's what the Mepharshim, we've covered this in the past, Arachayim, the Kliyakar, Adam Kiyakriv Mikem Korban Lashem, which is the second Pasuk of the Parsha. Moshe is instructed to tell the Jewish people, tell them, Adam kiyakriv mikem. Adam. You know when you're an Adam? You know when you're a man? When you fulfill your purpose? Kiyakriv mikem. Where's the Korban supposed to come from? Mikem. It's got to be a personal sacrifice. It's got to be personalized. It's got to be about you. It's not just as Yeshayahu Anavi bemoans as we read in anticipation of Tishabav. When Yeshayahu Anavi says, Lamali Rovzev Checham Yomarasha, God says, What do I need your sacrifices? They're empty. You can't just come to Shul and mumble the words, but not have any personal connection, not be speaking from the heart. You can't just do the mitzvahs and discharge them as physical, man- as physical obligations done. Lulav and Esra, check. Tiles and Tfilin, check. Candle lighting, check. It's got to be Kiyakriv Mikam. Where's the Mikam? The Neshama, the personal. That's where it is. And that's what the carbon was. If you went to the base of Mikdash and you just offered the carbon, it's an incredible thing you have with carbonus. You have the concept of pigul. You have, you have prohibitions when it comes to carbonus that depend purely on what you're thinking in your head. If you have the wrong thought, you can nullify the carbon. It's puzzle. And you're, and you're liable for the wrong thought. If I have the wrong thought when I take my lulav and esrog, did I do the mitzvah? Yeah. We paskin that you don't need, mitzvahs don't require kavana. You need kavana. Allah says, but if I'm not having kavana, what the lulav is, I think the citrus, you know, the esrog is a beautiful citrus fruit. I'm, I'm holding it because it smells great. And I'm not really thinking about what it represents. The heart or the good smelling, good tasting Jew or whatever all that symbolism is. But when it comes to the carbon, I have to have the right intent because it's Adam Kiyakriv Mikem. It has to be something which comes from you. And all of that is by way of introduction. That's what these parshios are about. And if you understand that, you understand what carbonos are. And if you don't, you will forever think that it is irrelevant, outdated, antiquated, and has no meaning or purpose for us. Yes, Dr. Siegel. Yes. Mr. Rabbi Jerry. Jerry's okay. Yes. When the Rambam says it, Perhaps he, he means in the day when it was given and, you know, subsequently 
considering the idolatry around that Kabanos, actual Kabanos was necessary, as opposed to his day when, you know, we already into tefillah. And right. Well, by the time the Rambam was writing it, there was no Beis Hamikdash, there were no Karbonos. So that would lead him to believe that Hashem provided it when it was needed, except that we yearn for a third Beis Hamikdash in which we'll have Karbonos That's again. Other question. Yeah, so we'll have Karbonos again in the third Beis Hamikdash. Yes. In fact, you know, I have a Geiris meeting today. I'm, uh, I sit on the basin of South Florida for Geiris. We meet every month and, you know, we, we do conversions, maybe uh, 8 or 10 a year, 10, 12 a year. So. We, every convert, when they're in the mikvah, right before they immerse, we remind them when the third base of Mitzvah will be rebuilt, there's a special korban, a special sacrifice that a ger, a convert, has to bring. And we, one of the things we ask them is, are you prepared that when the base of Mitzvah will be rebuilt, you're going to have to spend money, get to Yerushalayim, and bring the special korban of the ger? What is the special they, For another time. But they say, I mean, if they don't say yes, then they get out of the mikvah. That has not yet happened. But they all, they all accept so Karbanas will happen once again. Okay, let's get going. I want to offer two other introductions. We're not going to do our overview of the Parsha today because it's very technical and detailed. Learn the Parsha on your own. Each of the Karbanas, what the animals are, where they're brought, how they're brought, when they're brought, why they're brought. You could go through the, the Parsha itself. But I want to say two more words of introduction and then skip to the very end of the Parsha and study those Yipsukim with you in our limited time today. Uh, the, the, uh, so the second piece of introduction I want to share is the small Aleph. If you look on page 544 in the stone Chumash, if you look in any Chumash, which is accurate, you'll see that in our Sefer Torah, the Aleph of the word Vayikra is an Aleph Zeira. It's known as a small Aleph. It's a miniature Aleph. It's not the same font size as the rest of the text. The Sofer writes the Aleph in a smaller size. And the question is, why? So I don't want to develop it at length, I think we have in the past, but I will just refer you. The, the Balaturim says, you know why the Aleph is small? Because it represents Moshe's humility. Vayikra el Moshe, vaydeber Hashem love. God called to Moshe. The Aleph is Moshe's, a reflection of Moshe's humility. And this is in contrast to Bilam, who was a source of great arrogance. Vayikar, sounds like happened. God happened on Bilam. But Moshe, he called to Bilam, the Aleph of, of uh, I'm sorry, with, with Bilam who was arrogant, the Aleph is Moshe who is humble. The beginning of Sefer Divrei Hayyamim, the Aleph of Vayikra, when it refers to Adam HaRishon, is large. The Aleph is large, I'm sorry, in Divrei Hayyamim. Why? Because Adam HaRishon had an arrogance that led to his sin, whereas Moshe was humble. The question of the Balaturim, which I will leave for you to consider, the Chassam Sofer asks is, well, Moshe's humility, what are you waiting to the beginning of Vayikra? Moshe's been humble since Sefer Shmos, since we, was in, we were introduced to him. Moshe was exceedingly humble. But the word Vayikra has been used with Moshe earlier. So why wasn't the first time the word Vayikra is used with Moshe? Why don't we have a small olive there? Why do we wait to the beginning of the third book? What is significant about Moshe here? What is the connection to the theme of Vayikra that now we choose to emphasize the humility of Moshe with the small Aleph? That's the question of the Chassam Sofer. I submit that for your careful consideration. The Kliyakar quotes a different tradition. The Kliyakar on this Pasuk quotes a Medrash that is a tradition that the small Aleph is not about Moshe's humility. You know what the small Aleph represents? The Kinderlach, our small children. Why are small children? Because, says the Kliyakar quote in the Medrash, where do we begin to educate a Jewish child? Not from Bracious, not Shmos, not Bamidbar, not Tabarim. Excuse me, where do we begin to educate them? We begin to educate them with Vayikra. The small off represents the small children, Chinuch. Here too I submit to you a question for your careful consideration. If you were going to choose any passage 
any narrative, any section to begin educating children, Vayikra would likely be your last choice. What child, what six, seven, eight-year-old is going to connect to the themes of Vayikra? What? Well, what, who's going to connect with Vayikra? The stories of Bereshus are wonderful. The Mishka, the significance of Shmos is, is wonderful. But Midbar, the narratives are fantastic. Dvara, Moshe, Soliloquy, Vayikra of all places. Of course, I have an answer, but I'm careful. I, I leave that for you to consider. Okay, so that's the small Aleph. You cannot begin. Oh, another time. You cannot begin Sefer Vayikra without that careful consideration. And the third and final introduction I want to share with you before we examine some Sukkim specifically is another Medrash about the words Vayikra. The Medrash here says, Vayikra, look, look at the opening words of the, of the, of the uh, Sefer Vayikra. Vayikra el Moshe vayidaber Hashem elav me'oel moed lemor. God called Moshe and he spoke to him from the Oel Moed. God summons him from the Oel Moed and calls him and tells him, Moshe, you're allowed to, you're allowed to enter. So says the Medrash something incredible. I'll read to you the Medrash. Vayikra el Moshe vayidaber Hashem mikan amru. From these words that God called Moshe and invited him into the Oel Moed, Mikan Amru, from here we learn. You ready? Kol Talmud Chacham She'ein Bo Da'as Nevela Tova Himenu. Any Talmud Chacham who lacks Da'as, which we'll translate in a moment, any Talmud Chacham who lacks Da'as, a Nevela is better. A Nevela, a corpse. A Talmud Chacham, you can be the greatest Torah scholar. But if you lack Da'as, you're worse than a, than a carcass. Teidalacha, how do you know that? Moshe Rabbeinu, who is the father of wisdom, who is the greatest prophet. He took the Jewish people out of Egypt. He was the catalyst for countless miracles in Egypt. And split the sea. He was the messenger who brought back Torah. And it's Asik Mlachas and Mishkan, responsible for the construction of the Mishkan. And yet, despite that incredible resume, Lo Nichnas he didn't enter the Kodesh Akadashim or the Mishkan until he was called, until he was invited. Shene'emar Vayikra El Moshe Vayidaber. You see from the beginning that the Mishkan is erected, the Mishkan is complete, it's ready to go. But Moshe doesn't walk in until God says, Come in. He knocks, but he doesn't enter until God says, come in. Now the Medrash is very perplexing. It's a powerful Medrash, but it's difficult to understand. Because clearly Moshe is an excellent example of waiting patiently before entering, of not being rude and just walking in. Moshe is a role model, but of what? You'd say it's a role model of, if I had to describe what Moshe does here, is he practices... Respect. Respect, courtesy. Derech Eretz. But the Medrash doesn't use the word Derech Eretz. What does the Medrash say? Why does he use the word das instead of derecheretz? Moshe's behavior here is, could be characterized as derecheretz, courtesy. Not as das. What does das mean? Knowledge. It was Moshe's good manners, his etiquette, his decency that didn't permit him to enter without being called. Why does the Medrash refer to this as das? So, I want to share with you a first suggestion could be that the Medrash is teaching us a great lesson in the centrality of the importance of Derech Eretz in life. Why? Because by calling Derech Eretz Da'as, Da'as can be understood to a certain degree as common sense. It's common sense. By calling Derech Eretz Da'as, what it's saying is that Derech Eretz et- etiquette is not something that should need to be learned. It doesn't need to be studied. 
It doesn't need to be taught. Being a kind, being an appropriate, being a courteous person, a decent person, should be intuitive, should be instinctive, should be second nature, should be a result of common sense. Derecheret should be second nature. Treating others with respect and dignity, sensitivity and kindness should not be acquired traits, but should be instinctive. Derecheret, in fact, is kadma la Torah. Derecheret takes precedence over Torah. We find Derecheret preceded Torah by 26 generations. In other words, Adam was commanded in Derecheret 26 generations before the Torah was given. That means that as opposed to Torah, which is a, a body of knowledge that has to be studied and acquired and absorbed and attained and integrated, Tercheretz should be basic, should be simple, should be obvious. It's actionable. So maybe that's why it says, If you're a Tamar Chacham, but you're prust, if you're a Tamar Chacham, but you're rude, if you're a Tamar Chacham, but you're discourteous, you're worse than a carcass. Because how could you have all that knowledge and lack such common sense? Maybe that's the first understanding. Maybe that's the first understanding. And within that understanding, I'll tell you an incredible... There's an article by Rav Aaron Lichtenstein. Well, I'll tell you the second, which is really a corollary before I share with you the article by Rav Lichtenstein. A second suggestion that, that occurred to me came from an article that I read once. In an article I read, it described the following. There was an extraordinary doctor. He was a surgeon in a teaching hospital. He had many students, many medical residents. He was known to be very challenging very demanding, very difficult. His residents were very intimidated. It was daunting to work for him. Uh, he had very high standards and lofty expectations and, and really was highly critical of them. Um, so he worked hard. He worked hard to transmit the skills of being a surgeon, of excellence, different procedures and processes and so on and so forth. So when the students concluded their residency, each and every one of them were invited to meet with this doctor, with their mentor who would serve through this oral exam as their final exit exam. To complete their residency, they had to meet with him, and they had to pass his oral exam. So the article described that when they arrived, they had reviewed all the procedures of medicine and chemistry and physics and orgo and everything that they, parts of the anatomy, everything that they thought they needed to know. But each time there was only one piece of information, there was only one piece of information that he wanted in order to graduate them and consider them prepared to practice. They would come before him and he'd ask each of them the exact same question. Ready? He wanted to know, when you're done in the operating room, when you finished after you cut open the patient, did whatever you needed to do, sutured them up, when you're done in the operating room and there's someone who comes in to clean up after you, to mop up and to throw out the garbage and to remove the bloody pieces of gauze, what's the name of the janitor? What's the name of the custodian who comes in to clean up after you. That was the exit exam. Not medicine. Do you know after two years of residency in this hospital, what's the name of the person who comes in to clean up after you? You see, there's three types of knowledge. We talked about it last week. Chachma, Bina, and Das. Chabad. And the difference between the three. The doctor wasn't concerned with the Chachma. He wasn't concerned with the information the students had. He wanted to know the Das. Did the knowledge transform itself into practice? Does it make you a better person? Is it fully integrated to elevate and to enrich you? So maybe that's the message of the Medrash. Moshe's Derecheretz was not an exercise in etiquette. It was an outcome of his profound das. The depth of his understanding of Torah, the assimilation of that knowledge into every fiber of his being, caused him to be a better person. 
That's a big challenge that we have in our times. Just as an aside, Google generation, the information age, computer, we have more knowledge than ever, but is the knowledge turning us into better people? If, if your knowledge, if all that information, if all those Google results, if all that doesn't make you better, then, then you're worse than a carcass, then you're worse than an Avela. So Rav Lichtenstein has a great article. Rav Lichtenstein's article is called, If There Is No Da'as, How Can We Have Leadership? If there's no Da'as, how can we have leadership? And the, the question of Rav Lichtenstein's article is about Das Torah. Das Torah, which much has been written about, the concept of Das Torah, which essentially is the infallibility of rabbinic leadership. Right? The Pope, Havdil, as of yesterday, there's a new man who's infallible in Catholic tradition. You know, the Pope Emeritus regains his fallibility. Once he left this Pope, the first Pope Emeritus in 600 years, normally the Pope's only replaced when he dies. But this Pope, Benedict, who left, is, uh, he, it's, it's fascinating that fallibility can, infallibility can be attained and lost. So the Pope Emeritus regains fallibility. He could be wrong again. You know, whatever I say. In doctrine. It, it, what? In doctrine. That, in, oh, in doctrine. Yeah. Well, you know, the Pope's not married. If, if Pope were married, he would know that he was wrong. Uh, he'd be fallible from day one. It's only in his, the infallibility is directly connected to the fact that he's in, not married. If you're married, he would know he was always wrong. Anyway, so the, uh, there's a Jewish tradition that, that grew, and frankly is only recent, only within the last 100, 150 years, of Das Torah. The idea that you turn to rabbis for, for not halacha questions, but rabbis to tell you everything. Should I buy this house or that house? Should I do this or do that? Should uh, my son get married or not? Should I take this job or not take job? Do I do this business or not? Das Torah. What does Das Torah say about this? What does Das Torah say about that? So there are three main approaches to the concept of Das Torah. Das Torah is obligatory in every field of life, sacred or profane. Not only in, in realms of, of trying to avodas Hashem, but even the profane. Should I invest in this piece of real estate or that piece of real estate? It's the second perspective of Das Torah, that it's not relevant at all in material matters. Das Torah means I'm trying to grow religiously. Should I go to this yeshiva, that yeshiva? Should I dive in this shul, that shul? The third approach is Das Torah does not obligate us on a normative level, but it's worthwhile to rely on it. Meaning you're not bound by Das Torah, but it's valuable to consult Das Torah. When you are absorbing information and opinions to form your own, Das Torah should be one of them. So Rav Lichtenstein has on page 8 of this article a fascinating digression. He says, Any Talmud Chacham who lacks Das is worse than a putrid animal carcass. Quotes our Medrash, beginning of Sefer Vayikra, of Parshas Vayikra, our Medrash. And he writes the following, I'm reading directly from his article, which I don't think he wrote the article, it's a transla- uh, he did write it, but it was translated, he wrote it in Hebrew. One of the most difficult questions in this field relates to and encompasses a topic of our discussion. If there's no Das, how can you have Das Torah? Right? Das Torah, the idea of rabbinic leadership being more endowed with divine wisdom, predicates itself, Das Torah predicates itself on Das. So Ravon writes, To illustrate this, I will relate a story. Listen, it's an incredible story. Many years ago, I traveled to Bnei Brak to console my rabbi and teacher of Yitzchak Kutner Zatzal in his mourning when his wife passed away. Right? Rav Kutner was the Rashib of Chaim Berlin. Rav Lichtenstein studied in Chaim Berlin as a child. And Rav Kutner uh, then opened the yeshiva in Israel in Harnof. The Pachad Yitzchak was the name of the sefer that he wrote. And when Rav Kutner's wife died, so Rav Lichtenstein went to pay a shiva call. So he writes, When I went to see him, I found him sitting alone. We had a private conversation and this was conducted in a very open and honest fashion from one heart to another. 
Rav Hutner told me that one of the Talmidei Chachamim who came to console him tried to convince him and to explain to him how his wife's passing was positive inasmuch as she was now in the world of truth, a world which is entirely positive and other such nonsense. And indeed, it is not uncommon to hear such things when one goes to console a mourner, especially when the deceased passed away while being involved in a mitzvah or has fallen in the battle and sanctification of Hashem's name. It is superfluous to state that saying such things is totally unsuitable. I remember that when Rav Hutner told me this, he raised his voice and he applied the following severe words of the Medrash to that Talmud Chacham. Any Talmud Chacham who lags das is worse than a putrid animal carcass. Rav Hutner added in his thunderous voice, Did you hear this? Any Talmud Chacham who lacks Das. Consider this, said Rav Hutner. We're not discussing an ignoramus who lacks Das, but specifically a Talmud Chacham. A Talmud Chacham who has filled his belly with Talmud and response to literature, who's an expert in Ketzos HaChoshin, Besivus HaMishpat, but he lacks Das which can direct and guide him so that he will act with understanding towards others and interact with them in a civil fashion, he is worse than a putrid animal carcass. Had I not heard these incisive comments with my own ears from my rabbi and teacher, I would be fearful of voicing such sentiments on my own, of my own accord, said Rav Lechnustin. So without getting too involved in the question of the correct balance between das, wisdom, and understanding, in this context it will suffice for us to note that one can certainly conclude from this midrashic teaching that Das is not bestowed from on high as a free gift which is passed automatically into man's hands even if he is the supreme Talmud Chacham. Das does not necessarily accompany knowledge and analytical skill is not necessarily bound up with them like fire with hemp fibers. We have learned from Rufutner's incisive comments that there is a certain level of Das that is vital for a Talmud Chacham to possess without which his wisdom is severely impaired. And so even if we adopt the approach which requires obeying Gedolim, it would be logical to assume that this obligation applies only to a Talmud Chacham who possesses Das, not to a Talmud Chacham who is full of Torah knowledge like a pomegranate but lacks Das. A Talmud Chacham who according to the Medrash is worse than a putrid animal carcass. Would we approach this carcass who according to our sages is better than a Talmud Chacham to ask it for advice on medical matters? Can a Talmud Chacham who lacks Das be relied upon? Can we accept the words of a Torah genius lacking human and emotional sensitivity who possesses no psychological insight? And he goes on and on and on. So the concept of Das Torah, who is the arbiter? Who decides? Who is the authority of Das Torah? So it wouldn't be someone who ranks as the greatest Talmud Chacham because you see from Rav Futner's insight into our Medrash, you could be an unbelievable Talmud Chacham but lack common sense. So you're going to go to someone for advice who lacks common sense, even though they're incredible Talmud Chacham? In other words, before our Medrash, before Rav Hutner's insight, you'd say, being a Talmud Chacham by definition gives you common sense. By definition gives authority to your opinions. Says Rav Hutner, you could be a Talmud Chacham and an idiot, to paraphrase. You could be a Talmud Chacham and a moron. You could have incredible Torah knowledge but lack basic common sense. So when we seek leaders and teachers, when we seek guidance, it has to be from someone who couples both the Chachman, the wisdom, with the Das, with the common sense of a Moshe Rabbeinu who waited to enter the Mishkan until Hashem invited him in. Yeah, courtesy, derech heretz, common sense. Correct. Correct. In this context, what I mean by common sense also is common courtesy, kindness, sensitivity, so on and so forth. Okay, let's look at a few psukim from the end of the parsha. Do they teach that in the yeshivas? Do they teach that in the yeshivas? That's a good question. 
It's a good question. Okay, I'll avoid it. Parakei, Pasuk Chaf. Skip to the very end of the Parsha. The very end of the Parsha. It's much harder to develop a curriculum for it. It's easier to develop a curriculum for Chachma than for Das. It's harder. But arguably... Example is the best teacher, but arguably it's more important. Okay, page 566. 566 in the Stone Chumash. We're going to skip to the very end of the Parsha. Perak Hey Pasuk Chaf. Chapter 5, verse 20. And this is the conclusion of the list of all of the different karbonos that are offered, or that are described, that are mandated in our parsha. Hashem speaks to Moshe and He gives him one last korban for our parsha. What is it? This is the law of an individual, a nefesh, an individual, who makes a mistake. And Mami'ila is a form of, the article translated, I think, is treason. What does the article say? Treachery against Hashem. It means to violate Hashem. Mi'ila is when you steal something or use something of the Beis HaMikdash for personal benefit or gain. To violate Hashem. To violate Hashem. Treachery, treason against Hashem. So this is an individual who made a mistake and the result of that mistake is treachery against Hashem. And what was the mistake? Chichesh ba'amiso. They deny, they challenge someone having to do with these cases of money. Monetary dispute. Where a fellow man accuses them of having their money. Jerry says, Goldberg, you have my money. And I say, no, I don't. And what are the examples? Papikadon. What's a pikadon? Means a... A deposit. Jerry says, I, uh, I left, you have my book. You have $100. You have, you have something of mine. Oh, business yad. Or the second example is a, a loan. Or a begazel. Or robbery. You stole something. Oh, a shakas amiso. Or you worked for me and I didn't pay you. You were, I didn't pay you your wage that you deserved. So in any of these cases, you accuse me of having your money. I say, no, I don't. Chichesh, hachasha means to confront, to challenge. I say, no, I don't. By the way, notice the Pasuk introduces this as a mi'ila bashem. What does Hashem have to do with this? There's no religious violation here. It's a fight between me and Jerry. What does God have to do with this? We'll come back to that in a second. Oh, Pasuk of Beis. Matzah Aveda. I found a, a lost item, a chicheshpa, v'nishba'al shaker. What happens? I discover a lost item, but I deny that it belongs to someone else. And v'nishba'al shaker, I swear falsely about it. I swear falsely about any of the things that a person can do and make the mistake. So when I finally step forward and I'm willing to admit my guilt, I gotta give back what I've stolen. I have to pay the wage that I've denied. I give back the item that I've been watching. I have to give back the lost item to its rightful owner. So I have to restore any of this money. I don't just return the principal of the item. I have to add a fifth, 20%. I've got to pay more. I'm penalized not just to have to pay back the principal of that which I stole, but I have to add a penalty of a fifth. 
Yavil Hashem, and not only do I have to pay back the individual with a penalty, but I also have to pay back Hashem, because part of my violation was to Hashem. How do I pay Hashem? Hashemo Yavil Hashem, Ayel Tamim Menatzon, Be'er Kechol Hashem El HaKohen. Pasuk Chavhei. I bring a guilt offering to Hashem, an unblemished ram from the flock, has to be the right value, a guilt offering to the Kohen. V'chipera lo v'kohen lefnei Hashem v'nislach lo, it atones, it receives, I, I receive atonement, I'm forgiven, o'achas mikol asher ya'asel lo'ashma ba, any of these things for which I incur guilt. Okay? So this is the end of the parsha. this is a korban asham, a specific kind of korban asham, where I, I denied that I owed you money, I swore falsely about it, I later come and offer a confession, I have to pay a penalty of a fifth above the principal of that which I stole or owe, plus I have to bring this korban asham, I have to bring a ram to Hashem. Let's go through some mafarshim on this section. Says Rashi, what does God have to do with this? I stole from Jerry. Either I deny that I have his book, I deny that the object I found really belongs to him, I didn't pay him even though we promised we were going to pay him for giving a lunch and learn, I, uh, whatever the case may be, I owe money, I lied, I swore falsely, now I make a confession, I pay Jerry. Why does the Torah describe it as ma'ala ma'al bashem? That I cause, I, I practice treachery against Hashem. So much so that this is um, described as violating Hashem and that I have to atone from Hashem, I have to bring a korban. Says Rashi, Amar Rabbi Akiva, Ma'atam lomar u ma'ala ma'al bashem l'fishikola ma'al v'valova n'osavanosinina osa'ala ve'edim uvishtar. Normally when there's a transaction, how do we have outside accountability with the transaction? Witnesses. So normally if Jerry borrows $100 from me, or more likely I borrow from him, so we go to witnesses. We say to two people, will you be our witnesses? Either watch it, or will you sign a document, sign a star, a loan document, so that there's third-party accountability if we ever get into a conflict later. But if there's a private matter, if Jerry says, if I say, can I borrow your book? Or Jerry says, can you watch my book? We don't bring in witnesses, watch me take the book from him. There's trust. And what's the core of the trust? Because we believe even here there's a third party. And who's the third party watching? Not human witnesses, but the Hashem. We've invited Hashem to be the third party accountability, honesty, integrity. Lefichach. So therefore, when I say to Jerry, I don't have your book, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know your money, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not only violating Jerry, but I'm also violating that third party who we implicitly trusted, namely Hashem. A beautiful description of Rashi. Of Rashi. The Balaturim says similarly, look at Pasuk Hafei and the Balaturim. God is always watching. So when you lie about something that happened, you're not just hurting the, um, your adversary, the other person, but Hashem is always watching. So when you lie, you're, 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 you're making a fool of Hashem. When you lie, you're challenging, you're violating Hashem as well. Okay, Rashi continues, One of the things you could be lying about is a, is a, uh, a loan. A question of a, a financial loan. Rashi continues, Anything you stole. Oh, Oshak. 
the person who worked for you and they deserve their wage. And you deny it. You say it's not true, never happened. And you swear falsely about it. So, this is true, this law of adding a fifth and of bringing this carbon only when you admit, when you make a confession. But if in fact two witnesses come later and say, you thought no one was watching, we were watching, and you indeed give Jerry back his book. So then these laws would not apply. These laws only apply in the context of a confession. Hold on one second, Bill. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, what's your question? I understand the concept of making a fool of Hashem. I can make a fool of myself. I can't understand how Hashem... How can we make a fool of Hashem? You're making, I don't mean making a fool of Hashem. You're not making a fool of Hashem. Maybe that's a poor choice of words. What I mean to say is, if you and I witness the same thing, and then I'm with you while you're describing to other people a, a distorted version of what we witnessed, you're insulting me. Because I was there. What do you think? You're taking me for an idiot? I was there. And what you're describing doesn't correspond with reality. And you're as if... You're, you're, you're implicitly challenging my basic integrity. So Hashem is always there watching. And when you deny something happened the way it really happened in reality, you're, ta- you're taking Hashem for a fool. Maybe not making Him a fool. You're offending. You're offending the basic integrity. Where's the trust in the relationship? You're defaming His name. You're defaming His name. Excellent. Okay, so continuing. Look at the... Um, look at the Kliyakar. Kliyakar has a beautiful homiletic interpretation here. Says the Kliyakar, Pasach HaFalaf, Nefesh ki Bashem, kan here we describe the treachery against Hashem before we describe what happens to man. I'm sorry, the opposite. Here we describe the chait. Ki You made a mistake, umal And it resulted in treachery against Hashem. In the case of stealing from Hashem, we described it first as treachery against Hashem and only then the chait. And the Kliyakar explains why. But skip to the second paragraph. That's the point, part I want to emphasize. The Atzar HaRemez, Omar, Nefesh ki Basic described a person who made a mistake. They, they challenged Hashem. They lied to a person about the pikadon. Says the Kliyaka. Listen to this homiletic interpretation. Every night we deposit our neshama to Hashem to safeguard. The truth is, we owe God our neshama because we have made mistakes and we're liable and accountable and we really owe Him our neshama. But God doesn't hold on to the pikadon of our neshama. When we wake up in the morning, if we're privileged to wake up in the morning, <coughs> God has given us back. He has restored our neshama. So you violate Hashem because Hashem gives you back your pikadon. You're not going to give back the pikadon that you have someone else. Jerry gives you his book and you're not going to give Jerry back his book. You give God your neshama. He gladly restores it in the morning. So if you're awake that day, it's because God gave you back the pikadon. That's the ma'ala ma'al Says the kliyakar homiletically. The me'ila to Hashem, the violation of Hashem is, 
Hashem was kind enough to give you back the pikadon you gave him, namely your neshama. How could you not give the pikadon your friend gave your friend gave you? Okay. Um, Pasuk Chav on the Klayakar. Look at the next Klayakar. Perish Rashi, Kashiakir Batsma Shub Bichuva, Kikochote Liolum Liasim Asham Napsha, Vader Ishi Asherbe Nafukio, Morella Atma Heter, Bodar Havamor, Shahavlam Makam Akhalafidam Yono, Onidmaloki Aslo, Eza Al, Alkainu Maakev Pikdono. It's very hard for a person in life to admit guilt. In general, we don't admit guilt easily. Often we actually instead manipulate the circumstance to defend our actions rather than admit guilt. So I have Jerry's book and I don't want to give it back to him. So I don't admit, you know, I've essentially stolen because I have his book. What I say is, you know what, Jerry wants to borrow something from me and didn't give it back. You know what, Jerry is, uh, he, he's, he doesn't, uh, he's not a good person, he doesn't deserve his book back. You know what, whatever the case may be. L'fichach bayom sheyasim asham benafsho, what? He doesn't remember things easily. He won't remember. So I can hold on. I'll do more with his book by spreading his book around. Then whatever the case may be, it's hard to admit guilt. Instead, I justify and rationalize to defend my actions. So the fiqh biyom shi'asim asham nafsha aviyakir ta'uso kilotov asa ba'amav zeush nemar va'asham. So therefore, the pasuk, what did it say? Vayaki yecheta ve'ashem. What was the language? When you make a mistake, when you sin and you become guilty. So, the first step to admitting guilt is to recognizing you're wrong, he says. You'll never admit guilt and achieve atonement. You can't do tshuva if you're not willing to admit you're wrong. You have to be willing to admit you're wrong if you're going to... So when you apologize, but you don't have an admission of guilt, when you apologize, but there's no admission of guilt then you can't achieve atonement. What's the order? First you restore what you owe man, and then you bring the carbon. God says, I can wait. But you can't try to be whole with me until you're whole with your fellow man. Look at the Svarno who says similarly. She'ein a korban machaper, says the Svarno. Ela imkein peyes is aniza kodam havasa korban. The korban's not going to work. Don't be all religious and righteous and go to shul and chuckle and daven and say, God, I failed you, and hold on to the money that you owe somebody. If you failed a human being, you hurt somebody, you said something insensitive, you owe them money, you did something wrong, don't be such a righteous tzaddik. God does not interest it in your... Apologies if you don't first take care of the people that you've hurt. If you bring the carbon before you pay back what you owe, you have not fulfilled the obligation of bringing the carbon. Don't come to shul and shuckle till you've made your fellow man whole. God says, I'm not interested until you take care of fellow man first. And that's why the Psukim are in the order that they are. Okay, there's a lot more to talk about here, but we're going to end here. Yes? Based on exercise what? The penalty? Yeah. No. We have no ability to exercise. In Bavel, we cannot give out uh, Knas. Knas was dependent on the Batei Din in Eretz Yisrael. Gemara says there were times in the Beis Din outside of Eretz Yisrael could do it. They saw that they functioned as an extension of the Beis Din of Eretz Yisrael. But we lack the Sanhedrin today. We lack the authority today. So we no longer have the concept of Knas. We can only cause people to pay back Karen, the principal. Okay, have a fantastic Shabbos. Shul dinner tonight. Come celebrate the shul. Not too late to sign up.